So, hey, we are going to, to jump into a number of different passages this morning. So you can have your Bibles handy, but you'll want to jot down some notes because we'll be touching base on a number of different passages today. And we are actually concluding a, a four-week series that we've been walking through, uh, understanding who is the Holy Spirit, how does He work in our lives. And so if you've been here over the last number of weeks, you know, and maybe if you haven't, to catch you up, we, we talked about uh, when the Holy Spirit comes and works in our life. I'll explain in a moment briefly what that looks like, but He brings His power to be God's witnesses in the world. He also brings his gifts to us to do things that we can't do on our own. And then he produces his fruit in our life, which is evidence that he's there and he's doing things that we can't do on our own. And then this week we're going to talk about what does it really look like for God's presence through his Holy Spirit to live in us, his presence to be with us. What does that look like compared to when he's not actively working in our life? It's the comparison between a self-filled life and a spirit-filled life. And so just to kind of, again, back up and give the overview of the understanding. So, so if maybe you're visiting for today, you kind of understand the, the bigger picture. So when somebody says yes to Jesus, say, I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I understand that I failed in my life. And because of that, Jesus has provided a way for my forgiveness of my sin, that I turn away from that and I follow him. When you and I do that in that moment, God sends his spirit, this is what's crazy, to actually live inside of us. The God of the universe comes by his spirit in us to live and to give us power and gifts and his fruit and to have his presence work in us. In the Old Testament, remember Israel used to have to go to where the presence of God was, which was what? In, either in, the, in the, the tabernacle or in the temple, and they would make sacrifices and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. But when Jesus died on the cross and sent his spirit, guess where the temple is now? It's right here. It's us. So God's spirit, God's presence dwells in us. Now, you might not feel like that today. Maybe you're a little tired, you need some more coffee. But it's true. If you've said yes to Jesus, God's spirit is in you, and he wants all of you. And that's the key, is that we get God's spirit when we come to, to understand who Jesus is. But the question is, has he, have you given all of yourself to him? So that you're no longer living a life that is self-filled, but you're living a life that is spirit-filled. And we'll talk about that this morning. In fact, uh, what we're going to do is, I want us to, in a tangible way, to look at what this looks like in somebody's life. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, is the perfect example of what life looks like when we're living self-filled, when it's really about us, compared to after he experiences what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to live a Spirit-filled life. And his life looks completely different, totally changed, totally transformed. So I wanna, Peter's kind of the perfect before and after. So I want to begin with Peter before. So Peter, before he experienced what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and when he lived a self-filled life, and there's three things that were true of Peter's life that I think, if we're honest, sometimes we'll find ourselves in the same boat as Peter. We'll find ourselves living out the same things. The first thing that's true of a self-filled life is that it is self-propagating. So Peter demonstrates for you and I in Matthew 16 something of his own agenda. So remember, Peter's been hanging out with Jesus, and he's getting to know Jesus. And in Peter's mind, Peter has an idea of why he thinks Jesus has come, why he's come to save the world. And in Peter's understanding, and what Peter thinks, in really Peter's agenda, Jesus has come to reestablish the kingdom of Israel on earth like it used to be. When they were the, the kind of the, the, the big dog on the block, they were the ones that kind of control everything. They were the ones that had God's favor. Jesus is coming. He's going to restore all that. And it's going to be just like the good old days. That's what Peter's thinking. That's Peter's agenda. And it's about propagating the Jewish faith, the Jewish nation, 
at the exclusion of all other people. And so in Peter's mindset, that's what he's saying is supposed to happen. And in that, because that, when Jesus says to Peter, by the way, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to be crucified. What is Peter's reaction? Oh, no, 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 no. You, and this is what's crazy. Peter says to the God of the universe and human flesh, uh, you have it wrong. Can you imagine what it would be like to tell Jesus, you, you, you're, you're misinformed. You don't understand the way it works. You can't die. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You can't die. And the result of that conversation is in verse 23 of Matthew 16. After Peter says this to Jesus, it says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Anytime the God of the universe in human flesh says to you, get behind me, Satan, that's a bad day. It's not a good thing. You don't don't want him to say that. And Jesus is saying that to Peter because what he's exposing in Peter is he's saying, Peter, you have your own agenda. You don't have my agenda in mind. You have human concerns in mind. You haven't waken up to the reality of what's going on, why I really came. And when you and I live a life like Peter at that moment, filled with ourselves, all we can see is our agenda and how God comes along and he fits into our agenda, not how we fit into his agenda. Because we're so self-focused. We can only see what's going on around us. We, I mean, in us. We can't see the bigger picture of what God's agenda is in our life. Now, what is God's agenda? What is God's desire for all of us if you said yes to Jesus? Now, we could spend a long, a long time talking about the details of that. But there's just three questions I want to ask of each of us to think through. Am I really living out God's agenda every day? Or am I living out my agenda and I want Jesus to come join my party? What, what, which agenda are we living out? Obviously, Peter was living out his, and Jesus confronted that. But ask the, the, these questions of yourself this morning. The first one is, where am I actively seeking reconciliation for someone else? Now, why? Why that? Why is that God's agenda? Because if you, we've talked about the whole of human history is God unfolding the reconciliation of all things, people and creation, back to him through Jesus. That means that we're all in this process of God wanting to reconcile us, be reconciled back to him through Jesus. And that means that we, we say yes to Jesus. Now we're part of that reconciliation process. And that means every day of my life, when I get up, am I, not only in my own life, am I experiencing a right relationship with God again, even when I fail, but through Jesus I can do that. And am I looking around me to see in each day how I can help other people to experience that same peace, that same reconciliation, not only with God, but with each other. Is my life about reconciliation? Second question, where am I intentionally and actively discipling or influencing someone to be like Jesus? Not accidentally, but intentionally thinking, how am I helping the people around me? How am I helping my kids? How am I helping people I work with? How am I helping the people I go to school with, my neighbors? Somehow to get a clearer picture of who Jesus is so I am influencing them towards becoming more like him. Because you and I know if we're left to our own devices, we have this wonderful thing called a sin nature. And if we're not intentional about discipling and influencing other people towards Jesus, guess what we'll do? We will disciple them and we will influence them, but not towards Jesus, probably away from him. We have to think through on a daily basis, how am I helping people to find more of understanding of who Jesus is for them? The third question, where am I seeing people worship God in every aspect of their lives because of me? In other words, as we talked about earlier in offering, where, where is God becoming more of the priority in somebody else's life because of my influence in their life? 
they're becoming more of a worshiper, where their focus is on God. And he is, he's not just in their top 10 list. He is the top of their top 10 list. He is the priority in their life because my influence. If you and I can say, you know what? Pretty much every day of my life, I can say yes to at least one of those or two of those, maybe all three. Then we can say, yeah, I'm living God's agenda. But if we have a hard time finding any kind of example of that, then we have to take a step back and ask the question, am I living a self-filled life? A life that's only focused on myself. That's what Peter was living out. And many times you and I have a tendency to end up living that same reality out. Second thing, a self-filled life is self-promoting. So, in Matthew 18, there's an interesting story that unfolds. So, again, let's look at Peter's life. Peter's hanging out with Jesus, and Jesus has said to these 12, what we call disciples or apostles, now I want you to come follow me, which is pretty significant when a rabbi 2,000 years ago walks up to a Jewish guy and says, I want you to follow me. That was huge news, because that was the rabbi saying to that person, I see something in you of value, and I want you to come follow me. So these 12 people choose to follow Jesus, and they know that he, now they're getting this understanding. He's the Messiah. He's come to save the world. So naturally, if we're the 12 chosen ones, then we need to find our place of authority and leadership in this kingdom. And so they start to have a dialogue. They start to have an argument. And it says in Matthew 18, 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven. So who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be one that's going to have authority? Who's the one that's going to have leadership? Who's in, so they're, they're vying for this. Can you imagine if you and I could just eavesdrop for a moment what that conversation sounded like? You got 12 guys with big egos trying to show how they qualify to be the one or the two or the three that really has authority or has power in the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine Peter, 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 James, and John? They were kind of the, the, the big three. They were kind of the inner circle of Jesus. And then you had the other nine. Can you imagine them arguing? I can imagine Peter opening his mouth and saying, hey, you know, well, we hang out with Jesus more than you do. We know what he's thinking more than you do. So having this whole debate and this dialogue about who is the greatest, they're promoting themselves over the purpose of Jesus in their life and in the world. Now, you and I would never do that, would we? We do it all the time. We do it all the time. We think about what we want for our lives, how we position ourselves to be in a place where we can get what we want, we get the better job, get a bigger house, get a nicer car, make more money, be more successful, look, have people look up to us, be more popular, be more significant. And that's what drives us. And that is what? Self-promotion. That is promoting myself over God's mission. And we get into that, that mindset. We get into that lifestyle where really we almost feel a sense of entitlement. Like, it really should be all about me. Now, you and I don't wake up in the morning and say, well, today's really all about me. But we live that way, don't we? We think that everything really should revolve around us instead of revolving around Jesus. It's like there's this old, I think it was like the 1990s, there's this old Nissan commercial. Those of you who are older like me might remember it. But they were trying to sell, and I think it was the the Nissan Sentra, which is kind of the base model in, in the Nissan line of cars. And the whole concept was, if you buy this car, then you will have kind of arrived. It's almost like every door will open to you. All of your wildest dreams will come true. It's like Pedro, right? It's like all this, that's another movie. If you didn't see it, never mind. I won't go there. But it's like, it's this concept of if I have this car, then everything will, I, really my life can be all about me. And the whole commercial kind of unfolds. This guy's name is Bob and he buys the car and then everything changes for Bob. He's on the freeway. He's going up to a toll booth one day and there's all this traffic that's lined up on all these, all these kind of, windows to go through except there's one on the far right and it's wide open and it says bob over the top 
and he flies through it. And then he's going into the city and he pulls over to park in front of this building where there's no parking. There's a police officer standing there and the police officer starts to write, write a ticket. And just above the police officer's head says, no parking except for Bob. And then as Bob gets out of the car, the police officer says, oh, it's you, Bob. And Kim and I have joked for years about that commercial, about that sense of entitlement, like, oh, it's you. You walk on water. You're better than everybody. It's you, Bob. And I think sometimes we're like, and when I watch that commercial, I'm like, yeah, I'd like that. I'd like everything to open up for me. I'd like the world to be about me. I'd like everything to revolve around me. When we lose sight of, you and I can never find fulfillment when everything revolves around us. Because the only way you and I find fulfillment is when everything ultimately revolves around Jesus. But when we are living a self-filled life, we can't see that. All we can see is what we want or what we're trying to achieve. Then there's a third thing that's true of Peter's life that many times is true of us. And that is this self-filled life also is self-preserving. So there's another interesting encounter that Peter has with Jesus. Remember, Peter's response to Jesus is, Jesus says, listen, Peter, I have to go, and I'm going to die. And Peter's arguing. And then a later conversation, uh, Peter says, Jesus, I will stick, stick with you to the very end. And, and, P- and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going to even turn your back on me. And Peter says, I'll never do that. I will always be faithful to you. And then we know as the story unfolds, Jesus gets arrested. He goes on trial. And three times... Peter denies Jesus, and it says in Matthew 26, 75, it says, Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. What was going on in Peter's life? Think about it in our own lives. Is there ever been a moment in your life where you've made this commitment to Jesus? I'm going to do this for Jesus. I'm going to serve God in this area. And you have the, the most genuine, the most passionate intentions, but when push comes to shove, they don't really unfold. You don't have to raise your hand, but that's all of us, isn't it? It is. Peter had great intentions. But what happened to Peter? Is that finally he got down to the bottom of what it really meant to follow Jesus and what it was really going to cost him. And he realized, if I stay true to Jesus, it could cost me my life like it's going to cost him his life. And that's why in that, in that, that scene, it's like three different people and turn to Peter and say, hey, you knew him. He's like, no, 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 to the point where Peter actually swears. He cusses. He's so mad. Like, no, I've never knew. I've never knew. him. I don't even know what you're talking about. Why would Peter do that? Because his life was about self-preservation. How do I make sure I preserve my life when push comes to shove? I'm the most important one. Jesus takes the back seat to my self-preservation. See, you and I have a tendency to do that. There, I, I've, I figured out in my life, usually I'm willing to surrender. Most people are willing to surrender about 98% of who we are to Jesus. But there's always the 2%. There's always the 2% that represents that. That's like the bottom line. And a lot of times that 2% for us, even culturally it's true, but I think it's true even in the church, not just New Hope, but in the church in general, it comes down to comfort and safety. Those are huge priorities in our life. In fact, if you are here about a month or two ago, John Looney shared a dream that the Lord gave him about the enemy's work. Sometimes we don't even know he's at work, working in our lives through those things, through comfort, security, and safety. Those things that we hold dear to you. you know, oh, I don't, I don't think about it. Think about in your daily life how many decisions you and I make based on I want to be comfortable. Or how many decisions you and I make based on how can I make sure that my life and my family's life is safe. There's a lot of decisions every single day based on those realities. How do I make sure that I maintain those things? See, if you and I are ultimately going to live out 
a, a spirit-filled life, there comes this place where it's no longer about us. Therefore, I can lay down my comfort. I can even lay down my security because ultimately it's about Jesus and his spirit's work through me. And that's the tension point for us so many times. So that's, that's Peter's experience, and I think that's our experience before experiencing the fullness or being filled with the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then after, when you and I get into the book of Acts and we start reading about Peter's life, he is a different person, completely transformed, completely different. And so I want to walk through that. So the, the, the second part of what we want to talk about is the Spirit-filled life. What does it look like from Peter's life, from our experience? The first thing, the Spirit-filled life is illuminated. What do I mean by that? Acts chapter 2, this amazing thing happens. Peter is able, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, to clearly define God's purpose and prophetic fulfillment in what is happening in front of Peter. So Acts chapter 2, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Acts chapter 2, these group of people who are waiting because God, Jesus said, listen, wait, you're gonna, you're, the Spirit's going to come. You're going to have power to be my witnesses. So they're in this waiting, kind of seeking God, 120 of them. The Holy Spirit shows up, crazy. Fire comes in the room. It separates over people, and people start speaking in languages they don't even understand. But other people around them understand it because it's their own known language. They're hearing the praises of God. It's just this crazy thing that's unfolding. And then Peter, remember, this is Peter, the Peter that we know that stuck his foot in his mouth, who wasn't very articulate, who, who always, you're always kind of like, can you imagine when Peter opened his mouth? Like, I'm sure there's a few of the other apostles kind of wincing, like, what is Peter going to say? Peter, it says in Acts, 20, Acts 2, verse 14, it says, then Peter stood up with the 11 in the middle of all of what's going on, and he says, he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd, and he said, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then what follows is probably one of the most powerful messages in all of Scripture. What is Peter doing? Peter's saying to them, oh, by the way, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, this prophet named Joel, he wrote about this. He wrote that when the Holy Spirit comes, this is what it's going to look like. And so what we're experiencing today is a prophetic fulfillment of what, what, what was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Now, why is that so significant? Because Peter was a good Jew. And Peter knew the Old Testament, and Peter knew the prophetic writings, and Peter knew what was in Joel chapter 2. Peter knew that. But until that moment, Peter didn't know what it meant until the Holy Spirit shows up. And guess what? Peter starts to see something that he never had put, put together before in his life. That fulfillment. It's like the Holy Spirit illuminated his eyes to see this is what God was talking about. Before that point, Peter didn't understand it. But in that moment, through the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Peter was able to see what he had never seen before. And here's the thing that I've come to a conclusion in my own walk with the Lord. There are moments and seasons and times where you are going to discover things about God that you didn't know because you don't know what you don't know. And it's those moments where the light comes on and you think, how in the world could I have not seen this? How could I have not known this was true? And then the Holy Spirit illuminates it so that you see it. And I've shared a bit of my own personal journey before, but for me, one of those, those light bulb moments, which I should have got a long time ago, but I didn't because I was self-filled, couldn't see beyond myself, was after nine years in ministry, five years 
as a youth pastor, associate pastor, four years as a senior pastor. I went through Bible college. I studied Hebrew and Greek. I studied church history. I studied all those things, and I missed one of the important ingredients of understanding the church. I completely missed it, and that is this reality. Jesus is the Lord of the church. John Amstutz is not. Now, you guys know that. I know I'm a little slow, but the reality of that hit me nine years into full-time ministry because to that point, I was working under this assumption that I was the center and I was the authority and I was in charge. And because of that, that's the way I pastored. It was really all about me. It was about what people thought about me. It was how effective was I on, on, on Sunday morning of communicating in such a way that people would come back next week. It was all about me. And then finally, I started reading this book called Ephesians. And there's a few times in there, Paul makes this crazy statement that Jesus is the Lord of the church. You know what's crazy? I studied Ephesians. I took three classes on Ephesians in Bible college. I even studied the Greek of Ephesians in Bible college. And I still didn't get it. Why? Because I was self-filled. I wasn't spirit-filled. And finally, I got to the end of me, nine years into ministry, and God said, oh, by the way, just a small important fact that you want to know, I'm the Lord of the church. You're not. You know how freeing that is when you come to grips that you don't have to carry the weight of the church? Only Jesus can and only Jesus will. Now, for some of you, like, "Ah, that's not a big deal to me. But there's something in each one of us that the light needs to come on, and that only comes through being filled by the Holy Spirit. Second thing, by the way, is it really warm in here? Or is it just me with the lights? Is the air turned all the way up? (laughs) Somebody says no. Okay. I was actually asking an usher, but thanks for your opinion. So... But if we could, yeah, try to get, try to get the air going. Because I know sometimes it's hotter up here because I have lights, but I'm sure I see a few souvenirs being waved around called bulletins. So, um, so the second thing of a spirit-filled life is that it is miraculous. So we were in Acts chapter 2. If you go to Acts chapter 3, this incredible thing happens. So after being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and John are on their way, in a sense, to church. They're on their way to, to, to a place of prayer. They're going to pray. And on their way there, they encounter a man who they've seen before. In fact, he's probably, everybody knows him. He's the crippled man that sits near the entrance to the temple as they're going in. And he's the guy that asks for money. It's like the homeless guy that's by Walmart every time you come out of the exit. You know what I'm talking about? It's that person. Everybody knows who they are. And so when when they get there, what ends up happening is that Peter starts off in the same answer that many times you and I start off when we're faced with a need. I don't have any money. I'm sorry. And Peter says to this man, hey, I don't have any silver and gold. I can't give you anything in monetary value. But what I do have, I give to you. And then, and then let me read. It says in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it says, And Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Can you imagine I just want you and I to think so many times, oh, Bible story, that's great. I can see the flannel graph from when I was a kid, you know, of of the picture, what's there. Think about this. This is the guy that everybody knew. This is the guy that Peter and John had probably walked by dozens of times. They knew who he was. And in a moment, this guy who couldn't walk is now standing upright and he's walking. This is crazy. This is insane. Can you think about what that would look like in our lives? Of of somebody who you know has, has been infirmed their whole life, or that's their identity, and is in illness, and in one moment, God, through you, has the power to heal them, and he does. That would be a pretty good day, wouldn't it? I mean, incredible. Now, I already know what's already going on in all of our heads right now. Not that it's too hot. That's one thing that's going on in our head. But the other thing is, 
Why don't I see that in my life? Why don't I seem to see miracles like they seem to be described in, in the scripture? You know, and we could have all kinds of theories and ideas of, of why, but I know one thing's for sure. God never changes. People do. And what I mean by that is God is consistent. The way he worked in Acts is the way he worked today. But what changes is people. And I know for my life, when I look at this story and I think about, okay, the, the Acts of the Apostles continues to unfold throughout human history. What you and I come to this realization, if God doesn't change, then I've changed. And maybe for me, I'm not as filled with the Holy Spirit as I think I am. But maybe there's more work that God needs to do in me so that he can work in his miraculous power through me to do something that I can't do that will transform not only somebody's life, but the reality of what people think about who God is. Maybe I need more of the Holy Spirit in my life. Maybe I need to surrender more to him so that his power can work through me. Because I can tell you, if you and I get outside the United States, you start to encounter miracles more than we do here. Maybe they got something that we're missing. Moving on. It's getting quiet in here. Number three, a spirit-filled life is courageous. So going on into Acts chapter 4 now. So Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, does something amazing. So here's the progression of the story. Peter and John heal this guy. The religious leaders don't like it because now they're undercutting their power base and their authority. And because of that, now what ends up happening is they take Peter and John into custody. And now they're, in a sense, they're holding them. And so Peter, remember Peter, who was fearful for his own life and denied Jesus three times... In Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, listen to what happens. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and was being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I want you to catch the difference. Catch the difference. Peter was going to deny deny Jesus because he was in fear for his own life. Now he's standing up in front of the same people who crucified Jesus, and he says, by the way, this guy's healed because of Jesus, the one you crucified. That takes guts. Where did Peter get that? Did he find a case of Red Bull somewhere, and he just drank a bunch of it, and he was feeling really energetic that day? No. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with himself anymore. It even says that. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, And he makes this amazing announcement. Peter was courageous. Peter found a way to live beyond fear. The guy who was described by fear in the Gospels is now described by courage in the book of Acts. Why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a moment, just for a moment. What would your life look like if fear was not an issue? Now, some people come to me, I'm not afraid of anything. Yes, you are. You are. It's just a matter of time. You'll run into the thing you're afraid of. We're all afraid of something. And we're not, we don't realize that fear does dictate so much of the decisions that we make in our life. We make decisions based on what we're afraid of. Now, let me just give you a quick list of four, I think, that many times find their way into our life, that we make decisions because maybe we're so self-focused that we haven't seen that the God of the universe could do something more miraculous and more powerful through us if fear wasn't an issue anymore in our life. Some of us are afraid of poverty. What I mean by that is some of us are afraid of what our lives would look like if we lacked. And so every decision we make, particularly financially, is based on, I want to avoid being poor. I want to avoid, and poor is a relative term. I want to avoid being 
having a place where I can't get what I want or I'm concerned that I'm going to pay my bills or whatever it is. And so we make our decisions based on I don't want to be. I'm afraid of being poor. Therefore, I make sure that I don't do this and I save this and I hang on to that because why? We're afraid. Yet, isn't God the God of all things? Didn't Paul say in Philippians that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus? that he'll actually meet all of our needs. If you and I really believe that we are spirit-filled, you know what? Our lives wouldn't be described by fear of poverty. We would live by generosity. Why? Because if God has supplied everything for me, then I have everything that I need. And therefore, God will supply what I need. And if you and I live that way, can you imagine living generously? I can give away. Why? Because I know God will take care of my needs. Maybe it's not poverty. Maybe the issue that we deal with, the fear that we have is this is interesting, discomfort. And no, by the way, I didn't make the air conditioning not work today so that we would be uncomfortable. But discomfort, we are afraid to be uncomfortable in every aspect of our life. We don't want to be uncomfortable. Therefore, we make decisions based on how do I maintain my comfort down to the temperature in the room. Think about this for a moment. Down to the simplest things. When you and I get up in the morning, we want to make sure that the temperature's right in our house or our apartment, don't we? So we have thermostats that we set. I have a little heater in my office underneath my desk because the coldest room in this building is my office. Ask the staff. If I don't turn my heater on, it's like an ice chest in there. We have a standing meeting in the morning. We first kind of get, and we call them, it's like put on the parkas, warm up because it's going to be cold. So but the other day I was leaning down underneath my desk and I was turning on my, my, my heater And I thought to myself, why am I turning on my heater? Because it's chilly. It's 68 in here. 68. I need it to be 72 or I can't work because I'm totally uncomfortable. I can't hear from God unless the temperature is just right. And I did. I thought to myself, how much money is this costing us, the church? Not that now, you know, man, Pastor John's getting radical and I have to go and adjust my thermostat. No, I'm not saying that. But what was the decision all based on? I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be too cold. I don't want to be too hot. I don't want to be confronted with things in my life that make me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to have conversations with people that I don't know because it makes me feel uncomfortable. All these different things. Why? I, so I avoid everything that discomfort, is discomforting me so I can embrace only what's comfortable. It's fear. How about another one that's a huge one? Rejection. How many of our decisions every day are based on fear of rejection? I do all these things, why? So people accept me, but I don't talk to that person because I'm afraid if I say the wrong thing, they will reject me. If you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are forgiven and we are following Jesus, the God of the universe has chosen to accept us into his family, bottom line is it doesn't matter if humans reject us because God has already accepted us. But what if you and I live that way? If we end up living that way, then what happens is that everything we do is to avoid that. So we pull back from people. We don't risk anything. We don't live confident lives. We live lives that are a fear of rejection, so we don't do anything. You see that the theme, and, and how about the fear of death? We all fear that. The fear of death, that drives us every day. Our life is built on avoiding death. Safety, comfort, all those things. What? How do I live the longest? How do I make sure that I don't die before I'm supposed to? How do I which for any of us is never, right? We don't want to die. So everything that I do is based on how do I avoid death. When you and I live that way, we're not willing to risk anything. We never experience what God wants for us. In fact, the life that is not afraid of death is literally willing to risk 
everything. Why? Because they can't lose. Like Paul said, we really believe that to die is gain. It's actually better. Why? Because then I get to be with Jesus. So think about that. What, what would life look like if I wasn't afraid of poverty? That, that I wasn't afraid of discomfort. I wasn't afraid of rejection. I wasn't afraid of death. It would look like a spirit-filled life. Because what I just described are the crazy people you and I read about in the book of Acts. That's the way they lived their life. They were courageous. They weren't afraid. Fourth thing that's true of a spirit-filled life is that it is authentic. This is really interesting. If, if you look at Acts chapter 5, we're kind of working our way through Acts a bit here. So the spirit-filled life is authentic. What I mean by that is that Peter experienced this early on in the church, but when you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, he no longer allows us to live behind the mask of hypocrisy. In a sense, in a good way, he exposes us and forces us out into the open to live honest lives. And the way that we know this is true is this really interesting in, in Acts chapter 5, something that a lot of people look at and like we scratch our head like, what in the world is God doing there? So in the, the first church... People were living generously, literally. So when they, they heard that people had needs, they would go sell their property. They would bring the money, lay it at the apostles' feet so that it could be distributed. So there was actually a season in the early church when nobody had any needs at all. No needs. They were all being met. So this is what is unfolding. This is what's happening. And so people are doing that. And then this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they think, hey, we want to join the party too. We want to give generously. We want to be a part of this. And so they go out and they sell their land. And then when they come in, first it's Ananias. He comes in and he represents before the apostles as though he's giving all the money that they've made off their land. That wasn't required. He didn't have to do that. He could give impartial as long as he represented honestly. And as he does that, he dies on the spot. Oof. And then word doesn't get to his wife, and she comes in a few hours later, and they're like, yeah, hey. And they ask her the question. She goes, yeah, that's all of the money, and she dies on the spot too. Gives a whole new meaning to offering time, doesn't it? And people think, well, that's pretty, pretty horrific that God would just kill two people randomly like that. You have to understand what's going on. Israel had lift, lived under hypocrisy for hundreds of years. The religious leaders, the ones in authority, that's who Jesus talked about, the hypocrites, in, in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he talked about, you know, a hypocrite is this, the description of a Greek actor who put on a mask to live something different or act out something different, that, different from who they were in real life. So throughout Israel's history, hypocrisy had taken over, which is I do one thing over here to make people think something, but in reality, I live a completely different life. That within the first, who knows how, this wasn't very long, within maybe the first few months even, starts to creep into the church and God says, No. We're not going to repeat hundreds and thousands of years of Jewish history and allow that to enter the church. So on, that, on the spot, he says, no, we're going to live authentically. We're going to be honest. And this is what, let, let me read verses 12 and 13 of Acts chapter 5. Listen to the response of people outside the church. It says, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch outside the temple. This is verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though... They were highly regarded by the people. You know why they wouldn't join them? They just heard about Ananias and Sapphira. And they thought, I, I don't want to walk in there. You know why? Because I'm going to get exposed. That's what, that was what was going on. The people who had a, a hint of hypocrisy were like, I don't want to walk in there because someone's going to read my mail and they're going to know I'm not telling the truth. See, you and I understand this is a beautiful thing about the way the Holy Spirit works. In a good way, he exposes us. He doesn't allow us to live hypocritical lives. 
And if you and I live in hypocrisy, take a step back because we're now self-filled. We're not spirit-filled. He pushes us out beyond ourselves. He won't, he, won't, he won't let it lie. He won't let us live differently. He won't let us live in compartments. He forces us out to be exposed so that we have to be who we are. We have to be honest. Now, I've said it before, but I don't want to show you. It's like a 50-second clip. I'm convinced that whoever wrote The Wizard of Oz wrote the Holy Spirit into the script, and they called him Toto the dog. He is. Toto does to the wizard what the Holy Spirit does to you and I. Let's take a look at this together. Some of us are living behind a curtain. We are. And we're trying to pull the levers and be something that we're not. And the Holy Spirit comes along and says, no, you, you can't live that way anymore. I'm going to pull back the curtain. You're going to be who you are. You're going to be out in the open. You're going to show integrity. You're going to be, have honesty. You're going to be authentic. And that's one of the things I think that scares people most about really when we really become the church is that there's no more room for hypocrisy. And it gets too honest and it gets too real. Why? Because I can't hide behind the curtain anymore. But you know how freeing that is to no longer have to pretend to be something that you're not? In the book of Acts, God says we're not going to live that way as a church. I'm not saying if you come and misrepresent your tithe that God's going to strike you dead next week, okay? But Peter was the one they were coming and laying in the feet. And Peter said, why did you lie to God? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? You didn't have to do that. Show authenticity. And then there's a couple other things before we, we conclude that the spirit-filled life looks like. It looks like being teachable. So Peter demonstrates this ability to actually be humble, swallow his pride, and accept something that he would have ultimately rejected before, before being filled with the Holy Spirit. So remember, Peter's a good Jew, and in Jewish culture, you separated yourselves from Gentiles. You didn't associate with them. You didn't go in their house. And God comes to Peter in Acts chapter 10, and he has Peter up on this roof, and he lowers down a blanket. And on that blanket are food that the Jews were not supposed to eat, that they were deemed unclean in the Old Testament. And what God says to Peter as he lowers the sheet, he says, eat. And Peter, as a good Jew, says, I can't eat this. But God says, no, what you have called unclean, I've made clean. You can eat. And what God was doing is he was using the analogy of food with Peter to say, you have separated yourself from the Gentiles. You have called them unclean, but I have called them clean. You're supposed to reach the Gentiles. So as this is going on, some guys show up to, to the house and they ask for Peter. And Peter goes with them and he goes to Cornelius' house, who is a non-Jew Gentile. And he goes in, which he could have gotten in big trouble. He goes into a Gentile's house and he shares the gospel. And all of Cornelius and his family get saved and are baptized. In fact, the Holy Spirit shows up and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a crazy thing. What's going on is Peter learned to be teachable and humble and not be the person who knew it all. He discovered something that he didn't know. In fact, something that he didn't know, something that he, for years before, he would have rejected. But God says, no, Peter, you, you need to listen to me. Listen to Acts chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Listen to what Peter says after he experiences all this. It says, then Peter began to speak. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. The Holy Spirit working in Peter gave him the humility to get beyond his pride to see something that he couldn't see before, that God loves not just Jews, God loves all people. If you are not from Jewish descent today, you better be happy that that Acts chapter 10 is in the Bible. Otherwise, we're locked out. But have you had ever in your life ever 
been convinced in your own mind of something you know to be true. In fact, you've argued the case only later to find out that what you believed was true was wrong. You don't have to raise your hand because that's embarrassing. I have way too many of those stories in my life where we think, ah, I know, but our pride blinds us to the reality of what's really true. Probably the first time I remember this being an issue in my life, I was like eight or nine years old. Somewhere in my mind, I think it's because my parents growing up, we didn't, we weren't allowed to stay up really late. So, you know, when you stayed up late, you felt like you're really getting away with something. And I remember for some reason in my mind, I was convinced that midnight was 10 p.m. That was midnight. Maybe because I had stayed up till 10 one time and thought, wow, I stayed up till midnight. And I remember that's, I always thought that was kind of the big threshold. If you could stay up till midnight, then you're like almost an adult, right? So my cousin and I were talking one day, and, and our family was really structured. My, my, my cousin, their family, very kind of free-spirited. I mean, they were up late all the time. The kids didn't even have a bedtime, just kind of crazy. And so we talked about how they would stay up late at night and how we stayed up to midnight. And I said, oh, you stayed up to midnight? I said, you stayed up till 10 p.m.? And he looks at me, he's like, what? I said, yeah, midnight, 10 p.m. He goes, midnight's not 10 p.m. He said, midnight's 12 p.m. He's 12 a.m. He said, it's, it's the middle of the night. It's 12. It's not 10 and I said, no, it's 10. I know it's 10. And so we got into this big argument. He said, oh, it's 12. I said, no, it's 10. So I said, no, come, come talk to my parents. I'll prove it's 10 o'clock. So we walk over to my parents at our big family gathering. I said, hey, mom, dad, I said, what time is midnight? And they said, it's 12. I said, no, it's 10. It's always been 10. That's what we've, in our house, we can't stay up past midnight. We can't stay up past 10. They said, no, it's 12. And I remember my cousin, huge smile on his face, like, see, I told you. How embarrassing that was. How many things in our life do you and I, because of our own pride, don't even realize we don't see? We don't get it. Because we're so filled with ourselves, we can't see beyond ourselves to see that God is bigger than we've defined him to be. And this is huge because what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you is you start to not redefine, you start to discover what God has always said to be true about your life. You start to discover things that you would have disagreed with before about the church that now you understand because you didn't see it before because your pride wouldn't let you see it. This is a deep work that God does by His Spirit. And part of that challenge that we're walking through as a church is God is redefining us, and sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. Why? Because I want church the way it used to be. You mean before the Holy Spirit got turned loose in our lives so that He could define what He wants us to be? That's hard. But that's what He's calling us to experience. And then the final thing is this. Worship team will join us in a moment. We'll conclude with a song. Is that the spirit-filled life is confident. So Peter had come to this realization. Remember, the guy who was preserving his own life, turning his back on Jesus, comes to a place where he is so confident that God is in control of all things that he can fully surrender himself. This amazing thing happens in Acts chapter 12. Peter is arrested He's about to go on trial before Herod, and most likely that means that his life will be over. So he's in a cell. He's chained to soldiers. He's being well protected. What do you and I, what do you think we would do in that situation? I know the last thing that I would do is sleep. I couldn't sleep. I would be freaking out. I'd be in panic mode. Maybe that's just me. Maybe not you, but I would be overwhelmed with the fact that tomorrow I will die. But look at what Peter's doing. Acts chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. It says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke up. Quickly, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. 
Now, why was Peter sleeping? Because he knew that this angel was going to swoop in and touch him and the chains were going to fall off and everything was going to work out happily ever after. No, Peter had no idea. Why was Peter sleeping? Because he was at perfect peace that whether he lived or died tomorrow, it didn't matter, God was still in control. He had gotten to that point where he could be totally at peace even though he was facing death. And we know from history, it wasn't that moment that Peter died, but eventually Peter was killed for his faith. He was crucified upside down for following Jesus because he was willing to give everything. Why? Because God was in control. He had this confidence. Paul had that kind of confidence too. They, were, they weren't afraid because whether they lived or died, God was still in charge and God was still going to be victorious and God's kingdom still was going to expand and God was going to win in the end because he loves people. And think about that in our own life. See, a truly spirit-filled life fears nothing. I don't know if any of us have ever lived a day in our life where we ever experienced that. But I have, don't have to be afraid anymore. I don't have to worry about that. Some of you have probably recall the name Kayla Mueller. She was actually killed by ISIS fighters probably about a month or two ago. And her, her story hit the media. She's a Christian aid worker who had gone to serve people in Syria and was captured. And ISIS is looking for people to capture, looking particularly for Christians as a way to to either make their statement by executing them or try to find some way to exchange money or, or hostages for, for, um, for inmates and prisons and different things. And so she was one of those. And so she was taken hostage. And if you know the story, she was killed. And they came a, a, across a letter that was sent to her parents not, not long before she died, before she gave her life. And she had this amazing experience and the same kind of words and the same kind of confidence that Peter had when he was in that jail cell. And I want to read you a short excerpt from, from this letter she wrote to her parents. She said, I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I have come to a place in experience where, in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there is no one else. And by God and by your prayers, I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. I have been shown in darkness light and have learned that even in prison one can be free. I am grateful. I have come to see that there is good in every situation. Sometimes we just have to look for it. I pray each day that if nothing else, you have felt a certain closeness and surrender to God as well, and have formed a bond of love and support amongst one another. Wow. From what we heard, too, she was given to one of the ISIS fighters as a bride. So she's in this difficult situation, and what is she saying? She's saying that she's experiencing some kind of peace. She's experiencing light in the midst of darkness. She feels like she's being held onto and cradled in the midst of freefall. How is that possible? Because God's Spirit was present with her. Because God was present even in the most darkest moment of her life. And so she can write this kind of thing. Why? Because she had the same confidence, the same experience that Peter had. She had that. And that was just two months ago. You know what that tells me? The God of the universe who works through his Holy Spirit in Peter's life 2,000 years ago still works that way today. That God can give you and I that kind of peace. But it only comes when you and I experience what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And God wants that for each one of us. And God wants that for our church because God wants that for our community and our world. 
And that's the, the journey that we're on and as a church. It means that if we are really going to embrace this thing, this huge thing, that whether you like it or not, it's called mission. And if we're really going to be about God's mission, guess who has to be a part of the equation? The Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we're just wasting our time. Because he does what's miraculous. He gives gifts. He shows up in power. He produces the evidence of his presence in our life. He gives us confidence. He gives us courage. He helps us to get off ourselves and onto his agenda. He does all those things. And that's why we're walking through this in preparation. Because when we make the move to the new building, it's not about the move to the new building. It's a new it's move to a new reality, a new identity of who God's called us to be. It's not just changing addresses. It's embracing who God's called us to be. Are you ready for that? Okay, maybe next week you will. Some of you are like scared. Don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid of the world. Embrace what God's doing. God has so many things he wants to accomplish through our lives. He's waiting us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and stop being filled with ourselves. The moment we free ourselves from ourselves is the moment that God can work in our lives. In a moment, I'm going to pray. The worship team will come join us for one last song. I'm going to ask you to do something as, as we sing this last song. That you find a posture that is appropriate for you in order for you to feel like you are ready to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. So as we sing, you might want to stand. You might want to sit. You might want to kneel. You might want to lift your hands. You might want to close your eyes. Whatever it is that you need to do to say, okay, Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Work in my life. Then you find that posture. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you are unchanging. And the mission that you gave to your people 2,000 years ago, along with the gift of the Holy Spirit, is the same mission and the same spirit that you give to us today. So I ask, Lord, even in these next few moments, as as we continue to sing a song about your spirit's work in our life, that you would open our hearts and our minds, and we would begin to be filled by your spirit in such a way that, Lord, that that self-filled life will be something that no longer is a part of who we are. We actually get freed from ourselves in order to embrace you. So, Lord, whatever it is that we need, whatever it is that you need to do in us to, to overflow us in a sense that gets the self out and replaces the self with your spirit, Lord Jesus, would you do that so that, not that we have some emotional experience in our service today, but so that today and this afternoon and tomorrow morning, our lives are totally different, just like Peter's life was totally different. We thank you, Jesus, for your spirit who works in our life. In your name, amen.